Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm excited today to have with me Dr. Deb Schwangel, who is a pediatric anesthesiologist here at Johns Hopkins and our residency program director. She's a fantastic teacher, does a ton of teaching with our residents, and today she's coming on the show to talk about a really high-yield topic. This is asked about all the time on boards, and also really good to know if you do any uh, work with pediatrics with kids at all. And Dr. Schwangel and I are going to talk about the difference in physiology and anatomy between the pediatric and adult airway. Dr. Schwangel, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. This is a a really great topic for us to discuss today. Great. All right. So let's jump in. And I guess let's talk about first just sort of what are the big differences in terms of broad categories between adults and kids? We're always taught, right, that uh, kids are just little adults. Not so, (laughs) Uh, but uh, that is what uh, used to be taught in the Victorian era. You you know, you used to see pictures of of infants who had adult proportions, and we know today that that's just not so. Uh, Kids, of course, are transitioning from intrauterine life to an adult-sized body eventually and adult proportions. So they are different as infants, and, um, and their physiology is different as well. All right, so maybe let's start with anatomy. What are the anatomical differences that you think of or that we care about when it comes to kids versus adults? Airway is one of the main things that we should discuss. Uh, there are uh, often uh, a, a whole list of things that are different. I, I tend to ask my residents to give me a list of 10 differences between the adult and the infant airway, which is challenging if you've not really thought about it. Uh, and I like to start on the outside and go in. And the most obvious uh, first difference is that the infants have a large occiput. And this uh, implication is that they're automatically in the sniffing position. So you don't need to build up their head with a pile of blankets or a big pillow or something like that. However, the head being prominent in the back tends to roll around. And so we do tend to stabilize it with a head ring. And, uh, and that provides the support we need. And sometimes uh, when we do that, we have to put a shoulder roll under as well. All right, so a head ring and a shoulder roll to keep the head kind of anchored, but no need to extend. And then I think I remember always being told if you do try to extend, you can actually end up overextending, right, with kids if you try to do kind of what you would in adults and, and really extend the neck. That's correct. And, and in fact, uh, one of the things we'll talk about uh, in a, mit, a bit is that the larynx is higher in the neck, or we can just talk about it now. Sure. Uh, so the adult uh, larynx tends to be down around C5, and the newborn is up around C3. And um, so this means that when you're doing your laryngoscopy, you're almost looking just straight down. So you're not tilting back with your laryngoscope uh, in the same way that you do when you are doing a, a direct laryngoscopy with adults. Okay. And then what are other uh, anatomical differences that are important? So the infant face is really designed for breastfeeding. That is different than our needs when we're mask ventilating or uh, intubating. So the mandible is slightly retrognathic, uh, and the mid face is a little bit hypoplastic. 
so this makes the uh, the holding of the mask a little bit different and our need to really move the tongue away from the retropharynx uh, as well as the, the palate uh, important because typically when you uh, get ready to intubate these babies, you're going to find that the tongue is just plastered against the palate and you have to almost suction it off. It's just uh, uh, plastered there. So uh, you are going to find that it's really easy for these airways to be obstructed. And it helps a lot to do a uh, jaw thrust as you're masking. And, um, and, and of course, things like uh, CPAP help uh, with air, air passage as well. Um, and uh, and you're going to find also that uh, it's very easy to, or there's a danger perhaps in obstructing the airway completely with your fingers. Our hands are big compared to the size of the, the face, and you have to be very conscious of where you put your fingers and make sure that you're always putting them just on the bone. Um, and uh, and so that means that probably uh, like you're, you're eat, uh, drinking proper tea, you have to have your your little fingers up in the air when you're masking these these babies. All right. So adult hands would, would kind of easily uh, be able to obstruct just hitting off that bone, sliding off that bone onto soft tissue. So really important to stay on the bone. Now, you mentioned, you know, being important to get the tongue uh, out of the airway even more so than with adults because it's, you know, uh, relatively large for the airway. It, jaw thrust, you mentioned, do you use oral airways in kids? Sure. Uh, and I think that uh, we we probably uh, need to use them a, a little bit more, uh, although I, there are a lot of adults who need them too. But um, it, once your patient is deep enough, and, and this is, I think, a really important thing to remember, is we're mask ventilating a lot of these children who come in for elective procedures uh, without an IV. And so you don't want to just put an oral airway in until they're deep enough mm-hmm. or, or you precipitate laryngospasm. Uh, so you do uh, need to make sure they're deep and support them with a little bit of CPAP before you place that, that uh, oral airway. But then once you do, uh, it really can help. All right, and we should come back to laryngospasm later, maybe when we get to physiology, because that is something I think we think about more often in kids than adults. But let's continue with anatomy. So, great, we talked about the tongue, and the uh, you mentioned the difference in the larynx and where it's located. Uh, the epiglottis is an issue, right? With kids, this is something that, that comes up a lot. Yeah. So if you look at uh, the lateral view of the trachea, the, the orientation of the glottis and the epiglottis, the infant epi- epiglottis is definitely different. It hangs at a different angle, uh, and it's relatively long compared to the view of the glottis that you're going to get. So typically, the epiglottis is going to obstruct your view. It is also a folded structure, and so that makes it stiffer. And it's typical for it just to keep sliding off of your laryngoscope blade uh, when you're attempting laryn- uh, your your passage of the endotracheal tube. Uh, So people have different strategies for dealing with this. One is uh, to lift up the epiglottis with a straight blade so that you can get a good view of the the glottis. Another is to to just know that you might not get a perfect view. If you can see the arytenoids, you know where the glottis is and you really don't have to have a full view of the glottis. And sometimes you save a little bit of time and a little bit of trauma by not continuously trying to lift that epiglottis. Some people prefer to place the tip of the blade into the vallecula like you do in adults, and this will help to reduce that 
those multiple attempts of, of the epiglottis sliding off of your, your blade. Um, I like to do that and maybe use a styletted tube to just softly lift up the epiglottis with the tube so that then I can find uh, the proper place to put the tube. And what's your go-to blade? Do you use a Miller? I think I remember from my time doing pediatrics as a resident, there's a blade called a Wiss Hipple. Um, and of course, there are Mac blades and there may be others. Do you have a preferred blade uh, or it doesn't matter? I don't think it matters. Uh, of course, with experience, you learn that you can do almost anything with a normal airway. When it's a not an, a normal airway, then then things change a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I believe the typical teaching is that you use a straight blade for an infant epiglottis because most people teach you to lift up the epiglottis mm-hmm. with with that blade. The nice thing about that blade, of course, is that it's a low profile, and so it doesn't occupy a lot of space in the mouth. However, it's not very good at controlling the tongue. And so since the tongue is a little bit larger relative to the size of the airway, you often end up with that tongue really wrapping around the blade, and that makes it hard for you to pass your endotracheal tube down the right side of the mouth. Absolutely. I will never forget my first pediatric anesthesia rotation as a resident, and I was a CA2. I thought I was pretty good at intubating adults, and I expected to be good at intubating kids. And the first time I intubated a small few-month-old child or tried to, I I thought something crazy had happened. I'd gone into an alternative universe. I couldn't, for the life of me, find the cords. And I realized over the next few days that it was the movements, that the, everything is relatively so close together that us, what, what you're used to as a small movement in an adult in a baby is an enormous movement and can just wipe you completely by the epiglottis and the cords. And so I think that's a really key thing is realizing that all of this is really on a micro scale compared to an adult, at least in a little kid, a baby. And so small, tiny movements, which are natural to someone like you who does pediatric anesthesia, are not as natural to someone who is used to adults. Yeah, it's definitely a a whole different view, and you have to first know what you're looking for, what it's going to look like, how it's going to be different in appearance, and then the amount of space you have is certainly different. Absolutely. All right. So let's continue with anatomy. What other uh, what other differences do you think about in terms of the anatomy of children and adults? Well, uh, the the glottic structure, the whole laryngeal structure, is more cartilaginous. So you're going to have very large arytenoids relative to the size of the glottis that you're looking for. And as you're thinking about uh, putting novices in into uh, the pediatric world to intubate these babies, you can't look for those nice pearly white cords that you're going to see in adults. It just doesn't, the view just doesn't exist like that. So you don't have much ligamentous development. That happens over time as you grow, as your voice develops, those vocal folds get stretched and all of that kind of thing. And then you see the prominence of the, the true cords. When you're a newborn, you have a a big pesky epiglottis in the way, but you have very plump arytenoids, and that's really my go-to view. If I can see the arytenoids, I know exactly where I am. I'm very happy, and that's enough for me to pass the tube into the glottis. All right, and you said you do tend to use a stylet in the tube. I, I do if I if, if I uh, want to promptly get the tube into place uh, because one of the things we'll talk about in in terms of physiology is how quickly these kids desaturate. Yeah. And so if if you're worried at all about desaturation, you want to maximize your attempts or your 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 chances of success at the first attempt by putting in a, a stylet. But not everybody does. 
Okay. All right. And uh, we may get to this uh, too, but while I'm thinking of it, what about cuffs? Do you use cuff tubes or not, or sometimes? Yes. Uh, And typically we do use cuff tubes in this day and age. Used to be that we didn't because the the old style tubes had um, a cuff that wasn't very friendly to the pediatric airway. So the, the pediatric trachea is not exactly round. It's more a little elliptical. Mm-hmm. And uh, the old cuffs are round, um, and they uh, didn't fit as well in the amount of space we have between the, the cricoid ring and the, um, the carina. Um, so you would end up with uh, uh, problems with tube tube passage and, and tube positioning with those tubes. With the new microcuff tubes, uh, these cuffs are more appropriate for the infant airway. Um, they're shaped better. Uh, they're uh, low-pressure uh, cuffs, and um, they are very compatible with the airway. One of the things that's nice about using them is you then reduce the number of passes of, of placing, finding a, a tube that's going to fit properly. Right. used to be we'd have to try multiple on cuffed tubes to find the right size so you didn't have a horrific leak right. uh, during your case or that you didn't have a, a tube that was just so tight that you felt like you were screwing it in when you were placing it. Right, absolutely. All right, now there's, uh, speaking of things being tight, there's always this uh, controversy or at least you hear some controversy about where is the narrowest portion of the pediatric airway and how does that differ from adults? So you know, this at least used to be asked a lot on exams, and tell me about that. I think there's now more controversy about what the right answer is. There's definitely controversy now. It used to be unequivocally that it was the, the area of the cricoid ring was the tightest part. Um, that old knowledge base came from cadaveric anatomical studies mm-hmm. in the 1800s. And so in, uh, in this day and age when we can measure airways with MRI and um, other kinds of imaging, people have found that, well, it's probably all, uh, the glottis is probably actually a fairly small area of the, the airway in kids uh, as opposed to this old teaching. There are some uh, pediatric anesthesiologists who are absolutely firm in their belief that the the cricoid ring is still the narrowest portion of the airway, and that's the way we should size our tubes. Mm -hmm. What's clear to me is that the the glottis is a a mobile structure, and so you can place a tube through it that might not fit through the, the cricoid ring. And because that's a fairly fixed, um, firm structure. Right. And so I think, uh, to me, uh, we shouldn't be fighting about this. We should be discussing uh, why um, or what, what is the proper way to, to size a tube. Uh, what should we be using in terms of uh, pressures that we place into the cuffs and all of that with our cuffed endotracheal tubes and what is really better long-term for these pediatric airways. And I think we need more of these outcome studies rather than a, a bickering about the absolute narrowest portion of the airway. Absolutely. So the traditional question I think used to be compare what they were getting at in these questions was that the adult, the narrowest portion of the adult airway was the glottis and the narrowest portion of the pediatric airway 
was the cricoid, and now we haven't necessarily changed our view about adults, but we just it's unsure whether kids are the same or whether it's the cricoid. Probably those questions are going to be unlikely to show up any longer, uh, given the controversy. Well, I hope that's true, but when I took my pediatric anesthesia board, <laughs> that's right. that question was on there. That's right. And I was very uh, upset because I thought it was an unfair question to keep on the board exams. Right. So I would say if anybody sees that question uh, on an in-training exam or a board exam in the next few years, I would still stick with the traditional answer. Um, I think that's true. Yeah. All right. And that traditional answer being that the difference is that the pediatric airway is narrowest at the cricoid and the adult is narrowest at the glottis. All right. So what about um, the length of the trachea? Is that a significant factor? Well, it is because, uh, you know, it's just absolutely short. It's not abnormally short for the size of the person that we're talking about. But when you only have a few centimeters to work with, it's pretty easy to understand how you might displace the tube. So a full-term baby has a four to five centimeter long trachea. A one kilo preterm baby would have about a two centimeter trachea. So pretty easy to get that down in the main stem or for um, a well-intentioned surgeon to come and position the patient for something like a central line placement, extend the neck, and before you know it, the tube is out. And uh, so you have to plan for tube positioning if you know what the, the surgeon's positioning needs are. And so typically, we will place the tube first in the mid-tracheal position, but then I will uh, purposely advance the tube down into the, uh, the right main stem so we can measure where we think the carina is. And then we discuss with the surgeons how you want the head positioned, and then we will put the tube in either a deep or a higher position accordingly so that in the middle of the case, we don't end up with the tube in the wrong position. And that's important to think about also for laparoscopic procedures, which are going to push up the diaphragm, push up the lungs, push up the carina, and a tube that may have started properly positioned is now down the main stem because of that. Great. That's all really important stuff. So you, interesting, you actually will advance the tube until you lose breath sounds on the left. Is that what you do? And the minute you lose them, you say, okay, that's carina. Yeah. All right. And that's how you measure where the carina is. Now, you also uh, could use a fiber optic scope, I guess, if you had one narrow enough. Uh, There's probably a, a diameter at which they don't go any smaller. And so there's probably a size of kid where you cannot do a fiber optic intubation. Is that right? Well, we, uh, we have some very small fiber optic bronchoscopes. Uh, the challenge with them is that they don't have suction ports. Uh, right. They're very limited. They're like a, a, a single fiber, right, right, right. <laughs> a fiber optic fiber. Right. And, uh, and so you can't do a lot with them. They're also pretty flimsy. Um, and so if you, you have kind of a, a small, really small airway, May still be hard to use one. So, do you have a? Do you think of a certain size tube that uh, a fiber will not fit down, or can you fit it down even like a, a two O or three O tube? Well, a two O tube, no, because I okay. think our smallest bronchoscope might be a two point one. Okay. Uh, and a two point O endotracheal tube is a critical airway. Uh, if you have anybody who has an airway that narrow, then the the ENT surgeons need to be involved. Yeah. So you can't use it for that, but even as small as a 3.0, you do have a fiber that will go through that. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we could use it for th- through a 3.0, and you might be able to fit it in a, a 2.5. Great. All right. So 
talked about the uh, smallness and basically how you have to just be really careful. And unlike an adult, you can't sort of have that sweet spot, you know, sitting two or three centimeters above the carina if your entire trachea is only two or three centimeters. All right. How about the tracheal rings? How do those differ in adults and kids? Well, they're not complete in, in infants, and so any external pressure is really uh, makes it very possible to completely obstruct the trachea. And we, we can see this with our, our hands, our external pressures, the surgeon's hands, or things like um, uh, tumors or anything like that that might be in the airway or, or vascular rings that can uh, uh, cause an obstruction at the, level, the lower level of the trachea. How about kinking? Is there, uh, with extreme flexion or extension of the neck, is kinking of the trachea an issue in kids? Well, I think uh, we we have patients who have tracheomalacia, mm-hmm. tracheobronchial malacia, and um, and those kids will have trouble with collapse at times. It can also collapse if if they take a, a, a deep negative inspiratory force, and that will sometimes result in in a collapse. So it it can happen. Okay. So that's a pretty good review of anatomy. Anything you think we left out in terms of uh, differences in anatomy, kids and adults, in terms of the airway? I think that's a pretty comprehensive view of it. Great. Now, we talked along the way about a lot of the kind of roles that these differences play, what we do differently or what we need to think about. Is there anything else you think in terms of uh, how these anatomical differences play out that we should mention? Well, we talked a little bit about how we hold the mask a little bit differently and support the head. Um, When we talk about physiology, we'll talk a little bit about how we need to ventilate the kids differently. And certainly, um, if if the child is a sick child, it may change our, our approach as well. Great. All right. Well, so then let's use that as a segue and talk about physiology. So... When you think about maybe let's start with lung volumes and, and lung mechanics, what do you think of in terms of the differences between kids and adults? Well, what the first most obvious difference is that they breathe faster. And uh, that by itself accounts for the increase in minute ventilation that they have. The tidal volume is relatively the same. So you'll see textbooks that say 5 to 7 mLs per kilo or 6 to 8, same for adults or, or kids. Um, and infants are, are not reduced, which is... Often the view that people uh, have about that until they get educated, but uh, tidal volume is about the same. But respiratory rate in a brand-new newborn can be very high. In the first 30 minutes of life, you're allowed to be up to 80 for for like 30 minutes. Okay. But after that, 40 to 60 is really typical for a a several-week-old baby. And then over the next couple months of life, it slows down to like 30s to 40s. And then gradually, over time, you, you slow down to the, the typical 12 to 16 of an adult. Um, and so the question is, well, so why is their minute ventilation higher? Yeah, why is it higher? It, it's mostly metabolic demand. Their oxygen consumption is, is quite a lot higher, about three times higher than an adult. So textbooks, again, give different answers for this, this question, but uh, uh Adults typically have an oxygen consumption of about 2 to 4 mLs per kilo per minute, and infants are more like 6 to 9 mLs per kilo per minute. Okay. That is significantly more. It is. Uh, So it's about three times higher, and uh, it is especially high when babies get to about four to six weeks of of life and they uh, start to go through a growth spurt. Um, The reason for that, it's not intuitive, I, I don't think, is that uh, you um, 
you start to consume more uh, when you have a little bit of maturity of the liver. So when the baby is first born, I think it's probably an RNA thing where you have to turn on these enzyme systems. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a neonate, you're, you're, you're getting your act together. You're, you're learning how to eat. You're learning how to breathe an oxygen-rich environment. Right. Um, you're, you're learning how to uh, suck and swallow, all of this kind of thing. And then your, and your liver isn't quite turned on yet uh, fully. Um, so around four to six weeks, and breastfeeding mothers can all tell you when this happens, the baby wants to eat constantly, mm-hmm. uh, then the, uh, the liver has turned on the metabolic machinery and you really start to consume a lot of um, oxygen. Okay. So much higher oxygen consumption, and the way to get that oxygen to the body is going to be a higher respiratory rate. What about FRC? How does that differ between kids and adults? Well, so typically, uh, if you're not a preterm infant, it's about the same as adults, 30 to 35 mLs per kilo or so. Uh, But in infants, it's dynamically maintained. So... uh, as a um, an unconscious mechanism, infants tend to have a little bit of create a little bit of auto peep uh, with a partial glottic closure and also some stinting of their intercostal muscles. So we all know that the infant chest wall is excessively compliant, but their lungs are a little bit stiffer, and so you have this mismatch, and it means that a little more work has to be done to maintain that FRC and, and uh, avoid atelectasis uh, with these, these maneuvers, these muscular maneuvers. So when we anesthetize these kids, then it changes. And so this was studied uh, uh, quite a few years ago. I, I have read an old study that suggested that school-aged children fell into about the mid-20s uh, of, of FRC after anesthesia was induced and apnea was induced. And toddlers fell to about 17 cc's per kilo. And uh, they didn't do younger infants in their study, but you can hypothesize that a newborn or a uh, several-month-old child would be at least as low as a toddler right. because of these this mismatch of compliance and everything. Um, and so so here you have a situation where if you imagine that your, your oxygen consumption is three times higher and your FRC is half of what it is normally, right. then your, your chances of desaturation once apneic are six times higher than an adult. And, yeah. so, and so we see this. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is really key. And so uh, just for people out there, the FRC, we're referring to functional residual capacity, essentially the amount of uh, air left in the lungs after a normal tidal volume breath. And that uh, is one of the markers, as as Dr. Schwenkel said, of how uh, long you can go before desaturating once you get apneic. When we pre-oxygenate, we fill that FRC with oxygen. And then when we we make someone apneic, they can live off that oxygen that's stored there. And so if you're using the oxygen faster, like you said, kids do up to three times faster, and once you once you anesthetize them now, you've taken half of that FRC away, then you really are going to burn through that small amount of oxygen you've got stored. Even if you've been pre-oxygenated with 100% oxygen, you're going to burn through that really quickly. And so that, I assume, is why kids desaturate, especially little kids desaturate, in my memory, almost instantly when you uh, stop ventilating them. 
That's correct. So if if I pre-oxygenated you for five full minutes with 100% oxygen, it would take you six to eight minutes to desaturate. Right. If I do this with a three-month-old, they, you would get about a minute. Right. And if we don't do the full pre-oxygenation, well, then you get far less than that because right. typically all we do is denitrogenate and not really pre-oxygenate. And how about with, uh, you know, to push it to an extreme, uh, I have memories of doing um, pyloric stenosis uh, repairs with, you know, two, three-day-old infants, uh, and I feel like it was about, you know, 15 seconds to totally desaturation. <laughs> now, maybe that's my panicked memory, but, uh, do you, uh, you know, do you think you get a full minute even with a newborn, or is it a little less? Well, uh, so, I, again, it, it depends how well they are. And uh, typically, if you're doing something like pyloric stenosis, you're doing more of a rapidish sequence kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we typically, I typically don't do a true rapid sequence after I suck out their stomach and everything uh, because I know they're going to desaturate. And so I might do more of a modified rapid sequence. You, you will not get a minute unless you do five full minutes of pre-oxygenation. All right, great. So really quickly, desaturation, and as you said, one way you deal with that is just maximize your chances, use the stylet. If you know you only have a minute or less, you really want to do everything you can to get it right. Um, and what about if you don't? Let's say you, you, you try and they start desatting and you haven't been able to get the tube in. Easy to, to mask these kids back up? Any reason that, uh, that it's not sort of similar to adults in terms of be able to mask them with 100% oxygen and give yourself another shot, or does that work the same? Well, it works. It depends uh, a little bit on uh, the effectiveness of your ventilation. It also depends on uh, how well the child is. So let's just say, for the sake of conversation, that this is a well patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, you have to get your good mask fit. You have to get the tongue out of the way. You have to have uh, a good um, uh, chest rise with mask ventilation. Uh, And then you have to compensate for this loss of expiratory breaking, which is the the term used by some authors for for discussing the uh, auto peep and the 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 use of intercostal muscle function to stent the chest a little bit. So since we are we are not going to have our patient's muscle tone to do that. We have to ventilate in a way that uses um, or provides a higher mean airway pressure. Mm -hmm. And so the features of the the mean airway pressure equation, and it's a a complicated equation, so I don't want to go into that at all, but the, the, the features that are really important to this discussion are PEEP, use of PEEP, use of rate, so a higher respiratory rate, eye time, and then peak inflating pressures. So PEEP, PIP, eye time, and rate are really important in how we mask ventilate. So when you're mask ventilating an adult patient, you may go with a fairly slow rate, 10 or 12 or something like that. You empty your bag and you just sit there for a minute. When you ventilate these kids to recruit your alveoli and and to prevent loss of FRC, you are never going to let your hand off of that bag. You're going to maintain some peep the whole time. And your rate, you need to really consciously make it much faster than you would think you should. So we're going for a rate of like 30 or something like that, definitely the peep. Uh, you don't always have to use higher pip, but you want a longer eye time. And a lot has been discussed uh, in past years about the educated hand. 
Um, and this is really true when you're an experienced anesthesiologist and you're dealing with patients like this. You know how to ventilate in a more effective way that will help to uh, prevent FRC loss. Okay, really interesting. So you want to keep uh, PEEP. You don't ever want to let the sort of let your, let your patient lose that FRC um, because that can really have a huge effect on them. Um, and then you want to maintain PEEP. And then eye time is interesting because we usually, if anything, in adults with COPD, obstructive lung disease of any kind, we think of the expiratory time. And so uh, tell me a little, what is it about the inspiratory time in kids that is important to, to keep prolonged? Uh, well, it's I, I think it's part of uh, maintaining these these open alveoli. Uh, again, it's part of the the mean airway pressure equation, and um, so it's there's there's a, a mathematical physical reason for doing it based on that. But it's all when you think about it, it's all about uh, when you imagine the alveoli. Uh, it's it's all about never letting them collapse. Mm-hmm. And so if you're holding pressure a little bit longer, you're not giving them as much time to sort of regress and collapse. Great. So really just being really careful to avoid that airway collapse uh, in kids because of the fact that they've got the more compliant chest wall and it's not stenting it open as well. All right. How about the diaphragm? How does the diaphragm differ and, and do we care? We absolutely care because first of all, well, you know that the, the rate of breathing is much faster. Mm-hmm. So the diaphragm is challenged in that way. Uh, it is also a flatter structure. So if you think about the diaphragm in, an, in adult f- respiratory physiology, you know that what's important is the amount of, of movement that it has. And so anytime you have a patient who has a flat diaphragm, like a COPD patient or an asthmatic, uh, the diaphragm is definitely challenged. Um, and so you, in a normal person, you want a good bit of, uh, of decrease or, or I should say um, movement down into the abdominal cavity to create the intrathoracic pull that you need to draw air into the, into the thorax. Um, and so if, if the diaphragm doesn't move as much, you get less negative intrathoracic pressure mm-hmm. with, with each movement of the diaphragm. And so... Um, so it's the the radius of the arc of the diaphragm that uh, can be measured and can can help you to understand how much uh, mechanical force can be provided. In addition, infants are are often recumbent. Uh, adults are upright typically, and um, the chest wall um, has sort of this this bucket handle movement. This was a, a term used by West in his respiratory. Uh, physiology books, and so if you don't have that uh, that rib cage to create that movement as well, your diaphragm is a little bit more challenged. Um, and so, and then the other thing is that the the muscular fibers of the diaphragm are immature, mm-hmm. uh, lead to more fatigue, and so you you have uh, that challenge as well. And then the last thing is I like to think of this in terms of uh, the the term afterload. You have these tiny little airways that you're breathing against, and if you remember the equation 
that resistance is inversely proportional to a radius to the fourth power. Right. You know, the smaller your airway goes, the more resistance you have, the more work the diaphragm has to push against that. And so you really have uh, a diaphragm that's challenged in all these different ways. And so honestly, the uh, the oxygen consumption of the diaphragm is is pretty high mm-hmm. as, as a, an organ or as a structure in the body. And so if you have a patient who becomes hypoxic, has respiratory disease, or gets more challenged because they have to breathe faster, or they have something like croup where they have more obstruction in the airway, uh, then you're, you're more likely to have uh, respiratory fatigue, uh, diaphragmatic fatigue, uh, because of all of those features that we just discussed. Great. So they're more likely to get fatigued. You probably want to do less uh, or no allowing of spontaneous ventilation, at least when they're intubated, because they're going to have a ton of work, plus the resistance of the tube, plus the chance of losing your PEEP, and therefore you're having more airway collapse. So lots of reasons not to have infants breathing spontaneously through an endotracheal tube. Correct. All right. We did a lot of good physiology there. Uh, Anything else? Any kind of uh, last points about physiology? We covered a lot. Uh, I think that um, uh, people always ask, though, uh, it, uh, as well as the, the question of why do kids desaturate so mm-hmm, fast, mm-hmm. why do they go to sleep so fast right. with all little anesthetics? A couple, couple of big breaths of uh, SIVO and they're asleep, right? Yeah. And it's all about alveolar ventilation. and uh, uh, But then the other f- feature, the other factor is that uh, most of the blood that leaves the lungs goes immediately to the vessel-rich groups. Uh, the kids don't have as much skeletal muscle to distribute blood flow to. And the biggest vessel-rich group is the brain. So it comes out of the heart, immediately goes to the brain, and, and so you're distributing your anesthetics to your target organ, uh, and that helps the patient fall asleep fast. But the main feature is really the alveolar ventilation. So we almost never do a mask induction with adults, and part of that reason is it would just take a long time. Is there an age uh, in the pediatric population that you think eh, it's getting a little too old to do a mask induction? No, I'll do it for a teenager. Uh, We have lots of kids who come in and feel afraid of an IV or something like that, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes uh, some of the the teenagers are, are are more fragile than you would expect. Uh, they they look brave on the outside, but as soon as you get them into the operating room, they're they're falling apart. So right. uh, so rather than psychologically stress them, I would rather do a mask ventilation. Um, and and with sevoflurane, it you can get a, a pretty good um, induction, a pretty rapid induction, especially if you can get them to cooperate at all and to do this kind of three breath kind of technique. I don't think the one breath technique uh, exists very much because you can't get a patient cooperative enough to do a whole vital capacity breath. Mm-hmm. But if you can do a whole vital capacity breath and hold it for a few seconds, um, then you can get a pretty rapid induction even in a big person. Okay. Now, when you mask induce, do you use SIVO and nitrous together or just SIVO or what's your technique? Well, I like to start with nitrous if if I have a cooperative patient because the volatile anesthetics smell bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people remember that, and uh, they typically don't like that, especially if they're coming back for uh, a repeat visit. Uh, So if you can start with nitrous, that's kind of a nice way to segue into uh, sevoflurane. But 
it's not in, in infants and in, in young children, the, the effectiveness of both of them together does not equal a faster induction. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the advantage of it would be kind of getting them off a little bit to sleep without anything smelling bad. Correct. All right. So another question people get asked sometimes is about the difference in the circuit between an adult and a, and a kid. Now, uh, when I was training, we had a pediatric circuit, which was a smaller bore tubing, and an adult circuit, which was larger bore tubing. So what's the difference? Why would you, you know, care about that, and what, what role does it play? Well, I think there are a couple features of circuits that are important to remember. Uh, one reason to use a, a smaller circuit is, uh, is the concept of dead space, although we know with circle systems the dead space is really only at the Y piece, mm-hmm. and, um, and so the, the size of the, the tubing beyond the Y piece is not very important to the discussion of dead space. Uh, but uh, compliance of the s- circuit is is some, somewhat of an issue. Uh, in mo- with modern day circuits, I think uh, they're they're stiff enough. It's a little less of a concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we really think about with circuits and, and babies is um, is the proportion of, of dead space um, adding to your measurement of, of of gases and your ventilation and all of that. So entitled CO two is a little bit trickier to measure when you have uh, an amount of dead space that may be equal to their own anatomical dead space. And uh, so it dilutes out the entitled CO2 that you're measuring, and so you don't absolutely know what their their entitled CO2 truly is. And so what you're measuring by the machine is a diluted sample. And so you mean even just that Y piece with that, what, what we think of as a little bit of dead space in a really small infant could be a significant amount of dead space. Absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, similarly, if you have some amount of extra compliance in the circuit, meaning that part of your tidal volume is actually expended just expanding the plastic of the tubing, that can play a much bigger role in a kid who might only have a 20 or 30 cc tidal volume, whereas it's insignificant in an adult who might have a 5 or 600 cc tidal volume. And so do you find yourself relying more on the physical exam to actually tell whether you're appropriately ventilating the patient? Yes, uh, I think the the most important area of uh, of care that we that we work in that where this is really relevant is in MRI, where we use a twenty foot circuit. Mm-hmm. And so we studied this and and looked at um, the accuracy of spirometry uh, relative to uh, the patient's ventilation. And so uh, spirometry with a twenty foot circuit is not very accurate. Um, yeah. And especially when you're talking about really little people. Uh, so the bigger the person, the less uh, important it is. Um, and so what we teach is that when you're t- taking care of a baby, uh, whether in the MRI, cir- uh, MRI suite and the long circuit or a standard circuit, is you always have to look at the chest rise and make sure it's not uh, too too large or, or non-existent. Yeah, we had a uh, pediatric anesthesiologist when I was a resident who would tape a cup, a paper cup, upside down to the chest of infants in MRI so that he could see the cup go up and down from out in the, uh, in the viewing area. What, however you do it, really important to rely on that physical exam. All right. Another thing people get asked is about the difference in MAC between kids and adults. So how does MAC differ? Well, MAC is, is typically higher in kids. 
And uh, we don't fully know why, and, and each volatile agent has a different MAC curve. Uh, but when we're talking about uh, some of the IV agents, we, we know that there are definitely some differences in receptor function. Uh, and I, I can speak a little to the GABA drugs. Uh, we use tremendous doses of propofol. And so when, when, when we tell our adult colleagues how much propofol we give to a little kid on a per kilo basis, they're thinking, well, that would probably kill my adult patient. Sure. Uh, so it, it's not unusual to give five milligrams per kilo uh, to uh, a, a small child or a, a, a healthy, active teenager too. So, so there are definite differences. Mm-hmm. We don't understand why all of that is true in uh, related to volatile anesthetics, though. Right, and. So induction dosing of propofol much higher, and then uh, also I think infusion dosing much higher too. I remember having infants in the MRI on two or 300 mics per kilo per minute. Yeah, I've even used 500 mics wow. per kilo per minute in places like radiation oncology where you're not in the room with the patient. You have to close the big lead door, mm-hmm. um, and you, you want to make sure they don't wake up and fall on the floor or something like that. Right. And those doses, at least for a short period of time, are well tolerated. They are well tolerated, and we haven't really been able to demonstrate tolerance. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about uh, when you've placed an endotracheal tube and you uh, are testing for the, um, or you're worried about the pressure on the on the trachea? So we talked about this a little before, but you know, you obviously don't want, especially in a, a kid's trachea or anybody's trachea, but to cause any kind of pressure necrosis. So uh, our practice always was to do a leak test. Do you guys do that here, or how do you how do you decide how far to inflate the cuff? Yeah, absolutely do. I think it's very important, uh, not only in the care of kids, but the care of adults, too. Uh, I believe that uh, some people are not taught this practice. And um, a few years ago, we did a little study on this, and we found that when we measured we went around to operating rooms and measured with a manometer that some pressures were astronomical. Mm-hmm. We, we do know that uh, about 35 millimeters of mercury is uh, a, a, a place where you start to see ischemia, ischemia mm-hmm. in, the, in the tracheal mucosa. So what, what I typically do is once the tube is placed, uh, put in a, a little bit of air, uh, just so that we can ventilate effectively initially. And then once we confirm positioning of the tube at a, at a good place in the trachea, then I listen over the, the neck uh, with the, um, my, my syringe on the, the pilot balloon. Mm-hmm. Um, I set the APL valve at 30 and uh, just let the pressure rise uh, by itself in the, in the bag. And I watch the manometer and I adjust either add or, or take away some mm-hmm. of the air in the, the system. And so your goal is to have a leak at 30? It depends on the surgery. It depends okay. on the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I would say 20 to 25 is typically what I'm shooting for. Okay. But if, if the patient has poorly compliant lungs or something like that, I might shoot for a little something a little higher. Or if there's a risk of something like airway fire, I might shoot for something a little bit higher. Okay. And on another note, let's talk about, we, I mentioned before, I said we'd come back to it, laryngospasm. So am I right that kids are, are at higher risk for laryngospasm? Do we know why? 
they are definitely. Uh, I think it's a neurologic thing. I don't know all of the mechanisms of that, uh, but uh, we, it, we, you can clearly show the incidence is, is higher mm-hmm. in young children in the, the toddler and infant age groups. Um, so uh, part of that uh, risk that we see is related to the fact that we do mask inductions a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're vulnerable mm-hmm. when we don't have an IV. And, and when you do an IV induction, you can just bypass that stage two of anesthesia and, and you're, you're past the risk. But when you have a mask induction, uh, you're going to go through stage two. It may be a little bit prolonged if you have any degree of airway obstruction. And so then the, the child can potentially be at risk. But we, we do know neurologically these younger kids have an increased risk. So when you – I usually think of laryngospasm as something that uh, happens, you know, after extubation at the end of a case where, worst case scenario, you could always just give – a paralytic and fix the problem. But if you're, uh, if you have laryngospasm during a mask induction, you don't have an IV. What do you do? Well, you uh, the the most effective mechanisms for dealing with it are PEEP um, and a little bit of a, a jaw thrust. Uh, now that it's not clear whether the jaw thrust is a a pain mm-hmm. feature that sort of wakes the patient up a little bit and the pain makes them open their cords, or if there's some kind of neurologic connection there, people have talked about a certain point. Right, the laryngospasm notch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I don't know if there's really a a neurologic pathway there, uh, but it does seem to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I usually use a combination of PEEP and that pressure there at the the ramus on the mandible. And you find that that's successful most of the time? Most of the time. Every now and then you have somebody who has rock-hard laryngospasm and it's just not going to break. They desaturate quickly. They get bradycardic. And then you have to treat them with IM medications. So atropine and succinylcholine mm-hmm. are still the way to go for that. Okay. So IM sucks. We'll still open those cords if you have to do it. It, it will. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then the last question I have for you is uh, what's your thoughts on deep versus awake uh, extubation for kids? I think either is fine. It, you have to be prepared to deal with the complications of either one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of, of course, it's nice sometimes to do a deep extubation if if there's a surgical reason to doing that or or if your patient is uh, is is likely to be wild waking up uh, we like to uh, sometimes have parents near the, the child when they're waking up especially if they have something like autism um, that can make their their world seem a little bit more familiar and comfortable to them mm-hmm. and so that's a very appropriate thing to do. Uh, of course, if you if you extubate deep or pull an LMA deep, and you're transporting, you have to be prepared for laryngospasm in the hallway or some other kind of respiratory complication, including things like vomiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as long as you're prepared for that, I think it's fine. Um, and but uh, people talk often about uh, using deep removal of these airway devices as a way to expedite your day. I can tell you all you need is one good case of laryngospasm to erase all of that time that you think you saved yep. because it can take 45 minutes or, or more to stabilize that patient again. Right. And when you do have laryngospasm upon extubation, whether it's awake or, or deep, um, 
what are the steps? So you, I would assume you still are going to use PEEP and, and jaw thrust, uh, that kind of laryngospasm notch. And, and that laryngospasm notch, when I've seen it described, is maybe a little higher than you would normally do a jaw thrust, so kind of right under the earlobe as opposed to a little farther down on the jaw. It's much more painful. It's kind of, I remember as a kid when you were going to, you know, boys running around and you'd want to give someone a pressure point, <laughs> cause, you know, cause them pain, you'd kind of push right under their ear. And that is, I think, what's referred to as the laryngospasm notch. I think that's true, yeah. Yeah, pushing hard there. And, and lifting the jaw from there is, is what I think uh, people recommend. So mm-hmm. that, uh, as long as well as CPAP, uh, and if that doesn't work, uh, is your go-to f- with when you do have an IV, because it's after the case, do you do propofol and then only sucks if, if needed, or what's your protocol? Yeah, I think uh, first I usually, I still do try to do the airway maneuvers, mm-hmm. and then, but then propofol, um, and then and sucks if you're, you're still in trouble. Right. Uh, and so... Uh, it's it, it each situation is different in in what you choose to do uh, how you choose to manage it how quickly you choose to act great all right anything any last words you think we should uh, say before we sign off do you want to talk about mapleson circuits at all sure what tell me about mapleson circuits so mapleson circuits are um are a jackson reese a modification uh they are we use them currently when we're transporting mm-hmm. patients is this what's referred to here as the baby safe? Yes. Okay, the baby safe. The green, uh, so I, I never do it as a baby safe where I trained. That was a word a, I was... It's uh, a brand name, I yes. guess. Yes, okay. <laughs> I, I was introduced to here at Hopkins. But uh, this is the uh, essentially the, the circuit, the, the, the bag that is a green bag. It does not, um, unlike a, a... An ambu bag. A, an ambu bag, yeah. yes. Uh, unlike an ambu bag, it does not uh, stay inflated unless it's unless you're actively filling it with air. Correct. Okay. So that uh, that bag, uh, the Mapleson circuit or the Jackson Reese bag, um, tell me about uh, what what do you want to say about that? Well, uh, in years past, and, and the only reason to bring this up is because sometimes these Mapleson questions still appear on boards. Used to be a long time ago, the reason that Mapleson circuits were used for the delivery of anesthesia was because the the old anesthesia machines had heavy inspiratory and expiratory valves. They were made out of glass. And if you got a, a little bit of moisture on them, they got stuck easily. Mm. And you couldn't expect a little baby to move those things effectively. Uh, today, the, the 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 machines use a very lightweight plastic. It's almost like a communion wafer kind of uh, lightness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's not an impediment to flow anymore, even for a small baby. So uh, so we don't need to use Mapleson circuits any any longer in the operating room. But what's relevant about them is that um, there are a number of different kinds, and uh, what changes the 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 use or or your attention to fresh gas flow is is important to know because you typically have more dead space in a Mapleson circuit, and uh, you can use higher fresh gas flows to flush out. CO2 that might be accumulating in your in your dead space, mm-hmm. um, and how much you use depends on where the pop-off valve is, and uh, and so uh, so that is a is a viable circuit to use, but you just have to be aware of the dead space issues and the fact that if you are say you're going to use that for a whole anesthesia case, you don't conserve heat or water vapor or anesthetic vapor at all. With with these, and so they're they're kind of bad for the environment. They're certainly bad for maintenance of temperature for the patient, 
Um, and so you have to occasionally know these facts for your board exams. Right. So where this might come up is on oral boards. Uh, let's say you have a, a grab bag question about a pediatric case, and they may say, what kind of circuit do you want to use? And that's what they're getting at. You'd probably want to use a circle circuit, a circle system, because then they may say, why? Why not a Mapleson circuit? And that would be for the reasons you just gave in terms of maintaining heat and uh, moisture and uh, avoiding the dead space issue. Correct. All right. Dr. Schwangel, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was great. You're welcome. All right. So great to have Dr. Schwangel on the show and do a little piece on pediatrics. We'll certainly do more in the future. If you want to check out this podcast or any other, go to the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can download any of the episodes And, of course, you can leave comments. We can all learn from each other's comments, so think about letting us know what do you do when you take care of pediatric patients. Do you use different techniques? Do you use different circuits? Let us know what you think, and everyone can learn from what you have to say. You can also, of course, email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are enjoying the show, please take a moment, go to iTunes, and find the show. You can search for ACRAC. You can search for my name, Jed Wolpaw, and... You'll find the ACRAC podcast show there on iTunes, and please take a minute to give it a rating and leave a comment. It really helps other people find the show. All right, that's it for today. For Dr. Deb Schwengel and the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.